From AAC Studios, welcome to Scrappy, the podcast about small companies doing big things. I'm your host, Chris Stragus. Henry Salinas embraced and embodied the idea of service. Service to his country, service to his community, and service to his family. He passed away in 2017, but his son, Fernando, speaks of him with reverence and legacy. A lot of the kids that were going to the Boys and Girls Club, you know, they were showing up with their bandanas of different colors and there was rival gangs showing up and, you know, uh, in, in an effort to try to keep the peace, you know, so that the younger kids were not involved in any violence or uh, affected by any violence from these teenagers. You know, he just just thought like, I need to, I need to do something. I need to, I need to help these kids. They need it. Today, we've arrived at episode 10, the final episode of our first season. And I'd like to thank you for coming along to meet these incredible and inspiring people. Each in their own way are trying to make the planet a better place in ways both big and small, because they all have the drive to build a better world. You know, every so often, if you're lucky, you may get a chance to meet a motivator like Jennifer Lynn Robinson, or innovators like Julie and Scott Brusaw of Solar Roadways, or a game changer like David Katz of Plastic Bank. Our goal here at Scrappy is to give you the chance to meet lots of these kinds of folks. If you haven't yet, please go back and listen through the rest of the season to learn more about what makes these people tick. Then connect with us on Facebook and Twitter to hear updates about season two, which will be coming out a bit later this year. And it's not too late to drop us a note if you know someone who might be a great fit to feature on an upcoming show. As a young boy, Henry Salinas left school to help tend farms with his family in the American Southwest. His tack towards service was evident even way back then. My father uh, was born in uh, Lubbock, Texas. His, his parents were uh, migrant farm workers. Uh, they used to migrate, his family, his parents used to migrate uh, working in the farms and the agriculture, migrating to California, uh, Texas, Arizona. And they settled in Arizona when he was about four years old. And, and then he started growing up in, in Chandler, going to the schools. Um, he spoke Spanish first, you know, and even though he was uh, a proud American, he never forgot that story where he went to kindergarten and he didn't know how to, you know, ask to go use the restroom. and. <laughs> He learned how to speak English. He used to always say, he's like, you can learn really fast. <laughs> Chandler at that time was a very small town, uh, mainly uh, a lot of farms and, and uh, agriculture there. Eventually he had to leave school early, um, I think around the eighth grade to, to help out the family. So um, he was always you know, raised with hard work. He was always a sociable person. He was always a joy to be around if you ask people um, that knew him when he was young. At 19, Henry found good work at a military base and would eventually see a new path to service, 
this time for his country. He had started working at Luke Air Force Base. He was working there. He had got married when I think he was um, 17 or 18 years old. Um, got married young uh, to a woman named Yolanda. And, uh, you know, shortly after that, um, he, he enlisted in the Army and, uh, and they started training to go to, uh, to Vietnam. So went through boot camp and they were scheduled to, to fly out. Uh, just a few weeks later, and um, he had gotten his, uh, you know, notice um, that his wife was uh, given labor and that she was having some difficulty. And so the Army had given him a permission to go down uh, to see his wife, and uh, she ended up passing away during uh, birth. And uh, a couple days later, uh, his, his first son, Henry, uh, also passed away. Henry would stay in California for a few more years, finishing his stint with the Army and eventually remarrying. And though the trauma of losing his first wife and child was always with him, he would once again start to build a family, having two children before moving the family out of California and back to his roots in Chandler, Arizona. Fernando would be born soon after. In Chandler at that time, um, you had its old parts and it's kind of newer parts um and we he had bought the house in the newer side of uh uh chandler so that on that growing up on that street was like like the wonder years you know like there were so many middle class families everybody had kids you know just all around the same age everybody would go outside and play kick the can hide and seek you know so we all this just this one mile long street you know of kids of different ages just grew up with each other, um, and uh, for many for many years it was just a great a great time growing up. And so, you know, we grew up. We played sports. He always, you know, kept us um, involved in sports. Uh, he volunteered at the Boys and Girls Club. Got us into the Boys and Girls Club. Uh, went to church, um, and uh, he started the, uh, the Thanksgiving meals and um, started doing that annually. I mean, just these terrific meals. I mean, he would, uh, you know, cut all the watermelon in different shapes, you know, and just like if it was a, you know, five-star hotel. Um, and so, you know, a lot of the inner city families would go and they would just get this, you know, grand meal that was just, you know, um, lavish for, for, you know, just for any standards, you know, like, and the ham and everything was just, amazing amazing you know everybody that showed up the people the families that showed up the 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 business you know volunteers you're like what how is this and he would organize you know use his recipes but he would organize people that were volunteering and you know just really lead them and motivate them and just you know have this beautiful energy the Salinas family had settled into their life in Chandler, and Henry was becoming a staple of the community. But it was a rapidly advancing world. The 80s and early 90s would see a fast-moving national evolution taking place. And with these unprecedented changes came some unexpected challenges.
So the early 90s, um, if you remember, the there's a lot of gangs that started, you know, you know, just started happening. You know, the movies that were coming out, the, the music, you know. Um, and so it, things started changing and it depended on what, you know, kind of what area of the neighbor of Chandler you, you grew up in, whether you saw it on a regular basis or not. So, um, you know, a lot of the uh, gangs started happening. So you had, you know, some older established um, gangs in Chandler already. Um, and uh, they, they weren't really, you know, as violent as it started happening in, in the early 90s. Um, and then you had, you know, other groups that were not necessarily gangs, but just big groups of friends. But because the gangs, you know, as they would go to festivals or, you know, concerts, you know, anytime there was a big group of guys, you know, it would always, you know, clash uh, with, with others, you know, like where, you know, they would start asking, where are you from? And, and whether they were associated with the gang or not, a fight would ensue. And so a lot of these groups that were not gangs started kind of turning into gangs just to protect themselves, you know? And so it just kind of grew, um, you know, out of that. And, uh, you know, um, so growing up, you know, I started seeing, uh, you know, a lot of things on our, you know, on our street. I mean, uh, we had drive-bys, you know, on a regular basis. A lot of things started happening, you know, and, and a lot of people, a lot of us young people um, were desensitized to, to a lot of this that we were seeing out on the, on the streets, you know, and, uh, you know, in the movies and, and everything was just, it was just there. Um, so it was just kind of part of life, you know. My dad saw these things happening and the change and, um, you know, with, with uh, you know, with, with everybody, you know, with the community, with his, his son, me, you know, um, getting involved and becoming rebellious. Um, and, uh, you know, he wasn't really like a, a big preacher, you know what I mean? And he wouldn't just like preach to you and talk your ear off, you know, and, you know, like, you should be doing this, you shouldn't be doing this, you know, he would just lead by example, show love and talk to you and get on your level and, you know, just be a friend to you and listen to you, you know, and somebody you can kind of open up to. He was at the Boys and Girls Club and uh, these things started happening and a lot of the kids that were going to the Boys and Girls Club, you know, they were showing up with their bandanas of different colors and there was rival gangs showing up and, you know, uh, in, in an effort to try to keep the peace, you know, so that the younger kids were not involved in any violence or uh, affected by any violence from these teenagers. You know, he just, just thought like I need to I need to do something I need to I need to help these kids they need it.
At this point in his life, Henry dedicated his service to his family. He was commuting back and forth to Phoenix, waking at four in the morning and working all day. He'd come home to spend time with his children, driving them to sports, cooking, being an attentive father. And at the same time, he had gone back to school to earn his GED. His plate was very full. And it was here that his life would evolve into something else, something bigger than him. His innate impulse to serve would begin him down a path that would take him through the rest of his life, all while changing the lives of countless others. It began with him just trying to clear his head after a long day. You know, he started walking the, the streets just to get out. And uh, at first, you know, they didn't, he wasn't received, you know, and, and he was threatened by a lot of the gang members, you know, uh, they didn't know him. They didn't know his intentions. And, you know, he just he stuck with it. You know, um, he walked all over Chandler and, and people were just like, who is this guy? But for me, he was just he didn't change. He was just he, he never changed, though, like who he was, you know. Um, so I just always knew oh, that's my dad. There he goes. Um, he just started befriending, you know, and he kind of knew because he had worked in the prisons in, 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 in Watsonville. So he knew and he had been in the army. So he knew there was a structure. You know, he knew that the young people were just, you know, um, following the, the leaders. And, uh, you know, so and, and the leaders were following whoever had led them before or a lack of. And um, so, you know, he started just really getting involved with the leaders, you know, and talking to them and saying, hey, let's how about, you know, let's let's go play some basketball, you know, and he would he would mentor them and, you know, and he'd start listening to the to the kids, you know, know, we can't play basketball because there's another gang there. And they they own that, you know, and and what, you know, so he would go over there and talk to them and, you know, kind of go through the same cycle of befriending them. And, you know, so he would do that with each group, with each gang. And, um, you know, uh, they would voice their concerns and what they thought about the other group. And so he was just really getting all the intel and good understanding of what was going on. Of course, a lot of it was, uh, you know, a lack of the, the family structure, um, or, you know, the, the siblings were in prison, or, and, you know, it was just kind of just domino effect, and um, the, the poverty, you know, um, the lack of education and, and whatnot. And so the, the parks, some of the parks didn't have lights and they weren't being kept up by the city of Chandler, but yet there was other parks, you know, brand new parks and nice areas, you know, newer housing, um, you know, with, with beautiful parks. And, you know, so he, you know, eventually um, he would go out and, you know, he would go with him and, and say, let's, you know, let's go play ball. And he would just, he would be there as the adult, you know, and it would talk to the other gangs and said, hey, let's, let's, you know, let's have some peace for a little bit. And it started in the 
basketball courts out in the you know, in the evenings. And he would get some games, competitive games going on between the gangs. You know, of course, fights would break out every once in a while, but you know, it, it, he he took that that energy and you know and put it into a positive, competitive game. And uh, he would do that, and, and they would have, they would play tackle football, you know, or flag football, but ended up becoming tackle football. <laughs> you know, and um, he understood that there were just young kids that had a lot of energy, a lot of strength, and, and you know, just um, needed some guidance and some activities, some positive activities. It wasn't just the neighborhood kids and the gangs who came to know Henry. Parents in the community started to recognize what he was doing, and sometimes in desperation, they'd seek his help. You know, he started getting some parents other parents started calling him when their daughters would run away, you know, with their boyfriend or something. They would say, you know, the kids would say, you know, you need, you should call Henry, you know, and they'd get his number and, you know, and the parents would get connected and, you know, he would answer phones at late at night and two in the morning, three in the morning, you know, uh, he would go pick up kids, you know, that were stranded or whatnot, you know. And of course, throughout all this, you know, my mom's just like, what are you doing? Even to this day, um, I don't know how he did it. While his outreach and community support continued to grow, Henry was finding bigger and better ways to raise the bar and help kids in his neighborhood. You know, he started getting connected um, with the parents and they started getting involved, you know, and uh, they reached out and, um, you know, to the local school, junior high, to the principal. Uh, they opened up the, sc the school there on the certain days. He was very political. He loved politics. Oh man, we would oh, we would just debate back and forth. He was uh, he loved it. He loved that we were just informed, and um, you know, he would listen to the kids and say, you know. You know, you know, you can you can tell the city that, you know, you're a resident of the city. You know, the city owes you this. So he took the kids to the city of Chandler, uh, to the council, city council, brought them all in, all the gang, all these gang kids, you know, and sat them right there. And I said, yeah, you can go up there and, and, and talk to them and tell them what your needs are. And he started organizing it and showing them how they can make change. Uh, through the you know democratic process and through the through the city, and all this was new and you know and so the kids started just getting motivated like wow you know we could do this, and and things started changing and other and city council members started getting involved and and one uh, Patty Bruno in particular, um, you know she met my dad and and they, they talked and she was just. She's like, okay, this guy's like the real deal. He really loves these kids. She saw his vision and, 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 and her being a part of Chandler for a long time. She saw the same thing happening. Um, and, uh, you know, she was there to help him. And she was there since day one. Her, uh, Patty Bruno, was always there. So they, they ended up 
going to the schools and they got the police department involved and there was always a truce within the, the he made the senior ranking of the gangs he would call them together and say hey we want to do this you know um but we need some peace you know they would do car washes car washes was a huge thing they'd start getting uh together on the weekends and doing car washes and you know they never been to disneyland or or you know magic mountain you know and they're like man we would like to go to the beach and these you know my dad would say yeah you can do it I'm like what yeah you know we could just do some car washes and you know raise some money you know and the parents got involved you know and they started taking them out side of their you know their box just really started opening up their minds and uh you know um they took them to just different places like that different field trips you know fishing and um you know my dad was loved fishing you know i grew up i mean practically on the lake i don't know how he found the time i just still it's crazy you know because um he always took us fishing and um you know and uh boating and he had bought a boat and he would invite everybody you know it was all the family and whoever wanted to come you know neighbors you know he just shared everything that he had which was not a lot and so you know just just really he was just doing everything you know you know in his power and listening to other ideas henry realized that his mission needed more organization it needed some kind of structure. It needed a home base. So yeah, I think he felt that he needed to give them, they needed something to call home. You know, eventually they got um, a small little little office space in Chandler and there was no money and you know, he would use his money. They would, other parents would, you know, pad their salaries to just rent this place, just to have a, you know, a building to, to start something, you know because the schools was not, it wasn't theirs. You know, so once they got the building, the, the next, this building was just a little office space. And then, um, he, you know, they were continuing to look like, yeah, you know, we need a, we're growing, we're getting more kids. Um, you know, uh, some of these kids don't have food. You know, we need to find a place that maybe has like a little kitchen and refrigerator and maybe a basketball court. So they found this, the next place there in downtown Chandler. And, and, you know, they had a basketball court there, you know, they, a little gym, um, little kitchen, and they started doing more and just getting food from the food banks and, and helping kids. And these kids needed tutoring. And he, you know, um, knew that a lot of these kids were failing. So, you know, he would reach out to, you know, some of the kids that were doing really well in school and university students and say, hey, can you come and tutor some of these kids? And uh, just other people from the, the community from Chandler would come and, and tutor. Henry kept this incredible pace for years. He continued to grow the network of kids and parents. The community tent would get bigger and bigger until they even outgrew their first location. By now, they were, for all intents and purposes, a formal organization. And they needed a name.
when Henry started ICANN, he really wanted to improve the the lives of youth living within the Chandler community. And so improving Chandler area neighborhoods was very, it resonated with him because he knew that if he can improve the youth's lives and really get them engaged in something productive after school, he was going to be helping the whole community. This is Shelby. Shelby Peterson, and I'm the CEO at ICANN. She worked with Henry for years and now runs the show. She told me a little bit more about how Henry approached the organization that his outreach eventually became. So we've started using the acronym ICANN um, over the years instead of improving Chandler area neighborhoods. And it's it's great that it spells ICANN because it's this empowering and uplifting positive message to any child that participates in our program. I can do it or I, you know, I can be that person I want to be. I can overcome challenges that I'm facing, whatever that is for them. Um, it's just a really powerful, uplifting statement. Henry was such a humble leader. I, one of the things I respected the most about him outside of his incredible vision was his humility. And he was always very good about, even very early on saying, I need help with X, Y, and Z. Can you, you know, I need to find somebody who can do this so that I can, can be great 10 years down the road. So he always was very upfront with, you know, what he needed help with. He would go to the city council and ask for different things. And he found staff early on in areas where he knew he didn't have an expertise. He was just really a really humble guy that knew he didn't have the skills to do every single thing well. He had this amazing vision. He had access to the kids and he was this charismatic, amazing leader who could come in and put this place, put the, put this plan in place. He, you know, he always chimed the same message and the same key things that he wanted to see I can do. And, you know, as a result, it's been very drilled into our culture what his vision was. And so there's no question if you asked anybody in this building and anyone on our board what Henry's vision was, you'll get a variation, uh, maybe different words, but the exact same story. You know, he wanted a free, safe place for kids to go after school that would make investments in them. You know, it wasn't, you know, just a place for kids that wasn't fun, that didn't have, you know, skill building. He wanted them to have some kind of investment made in their life for them to be better than they were walking in the door. The fact that it was free and accessible to all kids, despite what label had been placed on them, was important to him. It was that investment in the kids that Henry was so passionate about. What, what can we do to make their lives better? Uh, and it did evolve over time to be a whole lot more focused on not just keeping them busy after school, but really giving them the skills to say no to the gang and to the drugs and to everything else in between. You know, how can we, how can we use our time wisely in the after school setting with these kids to impress upon them the importance of staying, staying away from drugs and staying out of gangs? So we started to offer programs to a wider range of kids, um, more age groups at that time. And again, that has only improved the program. It's only made us stronger. 
Henry was such a special guy. You know, he gave hope to teenagers at the time who really, they didn't see themselves as having any future. And, you know, we have alumni who have come back and said, I, you know, I would have died. I, I, there's just no question. I would, I would have died. And nobody thought I was worth anything. I, you know, I was making horrible decisions and I was hurting myself and hurting others. And, and Henry believed in me and Henry stuck his, you know, his arm out for me. And I, you know, I took hold of his hand and we, we walked out of that situation together. And, you know, he was the one person in my life that helped me. Henry was making a fundamental difference in the lives of these kids and, quite frankly, on the entire town. He'd found his mission, his ultimate call to service. But then in 1997, Henry's path shifted once again. Serious health issues blindsided the family and would burden him for the rest of his days. So he was, you know, working, and uh, I think it was... uh... 1997, um, in April, uh, he just was having some difficulty walking and every time he would walk, like his knees would give out a little bit. So he went to the doctor and, you know, just to get a a checkup, he's like, Hey, I I have this going on at work and it's kind of weird. My knees just kind of buckle. And so, um, you know, he called us from the hospital. He's like, Hey, I'm here. I'm getting checked out. And the next call we got is like, Hey, your, your dad's, uh, in a coma. We're like, what? It was hard to, you know, hear like, what? My dad's sick and like in a coma and we didn't really understand that. And so, um, so they had misdiagnosed him originally with, uh, uh, with Guillain-Barre and, and it, you know, after so many things, they ended up saying that he was, uh, he had neurofibromytosis two, which is, uh, a lot of the tumors alongside the spinal and, and, and his brain. So, um, that that took a toll. He was in a coma for months. He used to talk to me about it, and uh, he could hear everything like he was still awake, right? So he remembers everything, all the conversations, everything, when people would come in and out, you know, and, and you know, the... the the, the praying, people praying for him, people talking to him. And he said he would just try to like move his finger because the nurses would say, Henry, can you move your eyes? And, you know, but he said he felt like, just like his spirit, like numb, like not in a body, you know, it just, but he couldn't do anything. And, but he was, he said he would try to scream and just talk because then he eventually started hearing the doctors. They had come in with me and my mom and, 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 um, you know, talking about, uh, you know, pulling the plug, you know. You know, he said he was just trying, like, to, like, move and kick or, like, tell people I'm alive, I can hear you, I'm here, you know. And, um, you know, they they had talked to my mom and and said, hey, you know, he's probably not going to come out. If he does, you know, he's going to have brain damage and, you know, this and that. And so she said, no, you know, we talked about no, you know, I, she said, I know my husband, you don't know him. He is so strong. He's the strongest man I know.
shortly after, you know, a couple of weeks after, he started moving his toes. He started moving his eyes, you know, um, and, you know, it was a long process, but he, you know, it opened his eyes, you know, uh, he could talk again and, and we brought him home and uh, he had to learn everything all over again, how to hold his head up. He had lost all of his muscle. He couldn't even hold his head up. It was, he was, he would say it was like a baby. He couldn't walk, nothing, how to write again, everything all over again. His drive and his spirit, you know, and, and the, the love and the support that he had from us, you know, just, uh, and, and all of his friends and family, you know, just, I can, you know, the, the family from ICANN and Patty and, and, and Trinity and everybody that was there. I mean, just so much support. But he always said, he's like, mijo, son, I'm going to walk again. I'm going to walk again and I'm going to be back to work. He used to always, he used to always say that. I'm going I'm to be back to work. I'm going to go back to work. You know, so he eventually started getting stronger and he, and he went up to out of the wheelchair to the to the walker, you know, he used the walker for a long time. And uh, he, you know, one day we were moving. Um, we were washing the car in the, and right there in the driveway. And I told him one day, Dad, uh, can you move the blazer? We had a, a Chevy blazer. Can you move the blazer so I can move the, the Ford Explorer? He's like, no, I can't drive. I said, who says? He's like, your mom. <laughs> you know, it's like, you know, my eyesight's not that great anymore. And I'm like, dad, it's just, let's just move it. Just move it into the, uh, you know, to the road right there. Just back and reverse it. Cause he loved to drive. That was his, uh, he had so many passions, so many passions, you know, and he loved to drive and he was the greatest driver, greatest driver. I hopped into the, uh, he started it, I hopped into the passenger seat, and then he moved it into the road. And uh, I said, Dad, let's just go around the block. He's like, what, are you sure? I'm like, yeah. And that was it, you know? It, you know, we went around the block and we went down the street, you know, we went to the Circle K and he's, you know, he's just, he felt, you know, like he, he okay, he could do something. He has a purpose. We came back. My mom was outside on the street, you know, waiting, and she saw him driving up. She, <laughs> she about lost her mind. She's like, Gestas, you know, what are you in Spanish? You know, what are you, Gestas Hacienda, what are you doing? You can't drive. It's like, yes, I can. <laughs> So, you know, he started uh, making the errands, small errands to Circle K just down the street, you know, for milk, for this and that, and just started getting some independence again. I mean, everything he put his mind to and, and envisioned, you know, it was like the energy and the faith and, you know, just the, the, the law of attraction and whatever powers in the universe, you know, would just magnet, you know, and, and, and align to it, you know, and... Uh, and, and it did, and you know, he came to a full recovery and, and he started working again. And at that time, ICANN was, you know, being ran um, by a CEO, you know? So he's like, you know, I know ICANN is in good hands. 
you know, it was structured, you know, it was still providing, um, you know, what they had envisioned. And so, you know, they, uh, they all would, always would reach out to my dad, like invite them, you know, and that's the beauty of ICANN. They, 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 they kept him at the core, you know, they knew everything he did and, and they always kept him at the core and would ask him, you know, uh, for his advice and, you know, what do you think, you know? ICANN has always had the founders a part of it. You know, you have Eddie Upshaw, you have um, Patty Bruno, you have, uh, you know, AJ. You just had a lot of these people that stuck with ICANN with the same vision. And he, he felt, you know, um, 100% at peace. You know, but then he had some relapses. You know, he had some relapses and, uh, you know, he, he, we were like the second time we we're like, man, we don't, man, we don't think he's, you know, we, we were like, he's like, no, it's, it's going to happen. Henry's relapses were taking a serious toll. He'd struggle to fight back from paralysis, begin to work again, and then find him right back into sickness. He went through three surgeries, you know, and uh, that's when it started to change. Um, you know, after the third surgery, um, they were like, listen, you know, his spine is completely filled with tumors. Um, his brain, they keep on popping up, you know, we need to try some radiation. So he started doing, you know, chemotherapy, radiation treatment, you know, um, just treatment after treatment. And, you know, um, and that started having a toll on him and, um, you know, so he started losing its balance, started getting weaker, and eventually just kind of, uh, and he was fighting just therapy, and uh, the tumors just got in the way uh, neurologically, and um, um, he eventually, you know, couldn't couldn't move uh, anymore. He was immobile. By 2017, Henry was bedridden at home, in a coma, and under hospice care. He hadn't opened his eyes for days. But then, just a day before his wife's birthday, the strength he'd relied upon his whole life rallied one last time. He opened his eyes to spend some time with his wife once again, before taking his final breaths. Towards the end, um, he was just surrounded with, with family and friends and everybody, you know, everybody loved him. And he just, man, I wish you would have been able to meet him. We face his feet forever. We march along together. We're working backwards like a cigarette burns. When our kingdoms come, when we just can't run, we face the music and we solve our future. Henry served his whole life. He was at his best and he was whole when he was giving of himself to make the lives of others better, his family, his community. He was not one to passively observe, he was a doer. He understood that making deposits in the lives of others would reap untold rewards for generations to come. ICANN lives on and is stronger than ever. The legacy he built continues to foster the kids in Chandler with bigger and better programs, and it continues to grow in the light of its founder.
Thank you for listening to Scrappy. You can go to scrappypod.com for show notes and links to ICANN. Please find us and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and connect to us on Facebook and Twitter to stay up to date with season two, which will be coming out later in 2020. Getting closer like a rolling stone Wraps itself around your aching bones And depending on your strength You'll find a tailwind But nothing feels like the rapid flowing See us run And I felt so whole